Richard, Sicily, 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J, and seated across from me is the beautiful and twisted Monica. Hi! No, now she manages, folks. Yeah. We were just talking before we turned on the mics, and we've both been having kind of like a blah day. Yeah, I'm, I was I'm like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it, but, you know. Like, well, well, she's suffering from a party high from a Brendan Fraser's win. Yeah, Fraser, like Razor. <laughs> the mummy yes. actor. Oh, yeah, that's, you know. Well, I say he still should have gotten it for Bedazzled. I mean, um, that was, like, talk about range here. Well, someone just put a because I've been following the story about James Gunn taking over the DCU movies. Uh-huh. And someone sent him a message that said, J- just bring Robot Man into the DCU because they want to hear Brendan voicing Robot Man. Yeah, what was it, Batgirl too that they killed for some reason? Like, Yeah, they scrapped it. He was a Firefly in that one. Yeah. The villain. Like, yeah, I mean. I don't know. It, it could. I don't know why they scrapped it. But, uh, with, with James Gunn taking over, it, you know, people are split. I'm like, let's just see a movie, okay? Uh-huh. Yeah, let's, let's, just... let's reserve judgment until he releases a movie. Stop. All you, all you fanboys, stop crying. Stop wetting your pants. Just let the man make a damn movie. Then we decide. Yeah, because he actually, he does good as a villain, too. I would I would have loved to have seen him as Firefly. Well, I mean like a regular villain because right, I think yeah. But um, well, it's old enough anyway now, I guess, and not as well known. But I forget forget the name of it. But he was in a movie with Michael Keaton, and he actually turned out to be a villain. So there you go. And it wasn't okay. like bad, you know. It was just a regular no. people movie, and I'm, it was like dang. I'm so. gonna wait for uh, the whale to come on streaming before I watch it. Well, it's, it's just not free. It's streaming now, though. What, yeah. On what device? Oh, like the on demand or whatever. Or... Okay. I just. But yeah, you can. It's either I'll, you can buy it. I'll have to take a look. I'm still waiting for Cocaine Bear to be free to watch. Well, so that's like streaming. It's just, well, yeah, the free part. That one, but. I love that it's movie. On Prime, it's on Prime Video, The Wheel. Okay. Yeah. I, I, by, so. I loved Cocaine Bear. Ah, ah, a two-time winner. Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> cocaine. For those of you who, who remember the good old Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon B-horror movies, go watch Cocaine Bear. It, it. I loved it. My kids laughed through it. 
Was it like one where like Borders used to sell the like 50 horror movies or 50 scary movie collection? Um, this this would probably be on the um, I'm trying to think. Eventually, this will be in the five dollar bin at Walmart. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it was cool because a lot of them were like from like the 30 or oh, yeah. the seven the bad seventies ones. Oh yeah, like uh like a tentacle. That was a good one. I think like was well, Sisterhood of Death. That's a good one. And then um there's another one. I forget what it's basically a take off a spec. Right. Another um one. it was in there too. There was one I, I remember tentacle was about an octopus attacking a, a seaside town. Yeah. Orca was like the same thing. Yeah. My favorite was um William Shatner and Kingdom of the Spiders. Tarantulas overrunning a small desert town. Wow. Yes. My collection that's all like upstairs and all they it was good for you know pulling out see what and being Who was it? Jesse Tyler Ferguson was in this one from uh, Modern Family. He, yeah. he played. He played Mitch. There's there's a scene where the bear just mauls him up in a tree, and his his leg comes down, the rest of his body comes down, the bear co- comes down, and does a line right off of his leg. <laughs> I'm sitting next to my son, and he's like, "Dang, Dad, that's that's one hell of a line he did." I'm like, "He, he railed it, man." The actual cocaine bears stuffed in a uh, mall in Kentucky. Of course, Kentucky. Oh, you're right. Well, the story took place in Georgia, so. Of course, yeah, they had to like move up to Kentucky. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, once Alex told me it was in Kentucky, I'm like, road trip. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> I will go see cocaine bear. <laughs> Like the Scranton sign from the office. Right. Mall in the office. I think she'll be pregnant and then with James Winews too. Like I right saw there. something for the office and I thought about you. Yeah, it'll hit me later. Yeah. So all right, folks. After the 20 minutes, right? Oh, you're right. I think not quite that bad, but we got one for you today. One that I uh I get a little digging and found. It's um Part of our Hollywood Babylon section of the show, where we like to cover uh, Hollywood scandals and murders and all that fun shit. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, this is one I don't even, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, Olivia. Well, of course I've heard of it. I mean. Olivia no, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, she's not really like high on my, the list. No. But yeah, I've heard of her. And yeah, I've story and everything so okay i meant to ask you beforehand but i just we both been busy outside of the show this past week and oh yeah i just never got around to ask okay so they're gonna ask me out about if i heard of her well i mean there's there's some mentionings here of uh in pennsylvania i'm pretty sure you know like the proper pronunciation so i don't Furloyd? No. I'm guessing, but Okay. I never actually like McKee's Rock, I've heard. Okay, there was another one where I was like, yeah, I'm gonna butcher this one. Yep. 
once I get up to it, you know, you'll you'll know. All yeah. right, we're gonna go with Olivia Duffy. Was her? Yeah, on the other side, other side yeah. of the state. So right, she looking more like um, Pittsburgh area. Yeah, so that's like literally, you know, could might as well be on the other side of the country in a way. Well, I mean, it, I've been I've been to Pittsburgh. I've been through Pittsburgh, and that's over there by West Virginia. So. Yeah, it's basically bing, 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 bing. Uh-huh. Her her birth name was Olivia R. Duffy, and she was born in Charler Charler Oi. We're gonna go with that one. Pennsylvania, but often claimed her birth name was Olivera Elaine Duffy. She was the eldest of three children born to Rena and James Duffy, both of whom were Irish of Irish descent. Woohoo! Represent. She had two brothers, James and William, both of whom she later helped to secure work in the film industry. After serving in the United States Marine Corps in France during World War One, thank you for your service. William worked as a camera as a cameraman, and James worked as an assistant director. At the time of her death, both brothers were employed by Selznick Productions. Her father, James Duffy, was a steel worker and died in a work-related accident in 1906. You can only imagine what happened in the steel mill. I mean, yeah, could have been anything. After his death, the family moved to McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, a small mill town. Thomas and her brothers often stayed with their grandparents while their mother, Rena, worked in a local factory. Rena later married Harry M. Vankirk, a worker on the Pittsburgh and Lake Erie Railroad. wonder if he worked at conjun- Conjunction Funk. God, I'm messing that one. Con- conjunction Junction. What's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. That's the only thing I can Oh, I just saw a Schoolhouse Rock adult coloring book. I guess you're getting that now, huh? I am so... I've had to explain Schoolhouse Rocks to Alex. Right. Now, their only child together, daughter Harriet, was born in 1914... But she died in a car accident in 1931. Olivia left school at 15 to help support her siblings. She got a job selling gingham at Joseph Horn's department store for $2.75 per week, which is about the equivalent of $79.98 in today's money. Hey, if you were making $2.75 a week, you were making some good money back then. Well, if you're making seventy nine ninety eight a week from two years ago, were you making good money? Yeah, true. Yeah, see, you just literally said the equivalent, so right. Like, but I mean, in, I mean, you in, can survive bare. I mean, it's not well, like, right. I mean, you're you're going to be bloated because you're eating a lot of fast food. Yeah, and I guess it also slash the fact that she um well okay never mind. Next line is about getting married, but, but like the fact that she wasn't trying to raise a no. family on that or anything. So 
No, but you got to figure back in the early 1900s, two seventy five a week was something. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. She wasn't trying to like survive on her own either, so that helped. No, her. and it's like um, you know, I've I've done some looking. I've I've read some stories about Confederate widows, mm-hmm. like these young girls who are like 16 marrying these 60 year old men because they were getting a pension of 60 bucks a month. Yeah. So it's like, oh, do I starve on the farm or do I? You know, Anna Nicole Smith here and uh, marry this man because he's got 60 bucks a month pension. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to Anna Nicole Smith this. Yep. At 16, in April of 1911, she married Bernard Krug Thomas. There's a good, That's a name that needs to come back, Krug. In McKee's Rocks. Now, during their two-year marriage, she re- Two years? Man, mine lasted longer than that. <laughs> mine was six. She reportedly worked as a clerk in Kaufman's, which was a major department store in Pittsburgh. After the separation in 1913, she moved to New York and lived with a family member. She later found work in a Harlem department store. That could have turned out completely different. But then she was there before the Harlem Renaissance, too. So I wonder what that was like. In 1914, we took a little trip. Thomas entered and subsequently won the most beautiful girl in New York City contest held by Howard Chandler Christie, a commercial artist. Winning the contest helped establish her career as an artist's model and she would later pose for Harrison Fisher, Raphael Kirshner, Perrin Stanlaws, and Haskell Coffin. Thomas was featured on many magazine covers, including that of the Saturday Evening Post. Fisher wrote a letter of recommendation to Florence Ziegfeld Jr., resulting in Thomas's being hired for the Ziegfeld Follies. Oh, Ziegfeld, man, that was entertainment. However, Olive later disputed this, claiming she walked right up and asked for the job. She made her stage debut in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1915 on June 21st, 1915. Thomas's popularity in the Follies led to her being cast in Ziegfeld's more risque Midnight Frolic show. I would have loved to have seen that. The Frolic was staged after hours in the roof garden of the New Amsterdam Theater. It was primarily a show for famous male patrons who had plenty of money to bestow on the beautiful young female performers. Olive received expensive gifts from her admirers. It was rumored that German ambassador Albrecht von Bernstorff had given her a $10,000 string of pearls. I'm not going to say the joke. I'm not going to say the joke. You know, during her time in the Follies, skeet, skeet, skeet. Thomas began an affair with Florence Ziegfeld. Ziegfeld, who was married to actress Billy Burke, had affairs with other Ziegfeld girls, including Lillian Lorraine and Marilyn Miller, who later married Thomas's widower, Jack Pickford. Thomas ended the affair with Ziegfeld after he refused to leave Burke to marry her. Thomas continued. Thomas continued modeling while appearing in the Follies. Alberto Vargas, Florence Ziegfeld's artist in residence, who painted many stars of the 
the Ziegfeld stage, immortalized Thomas in the portrait he painted of her from memory after her death and titled it Memory of Olive Thomas or the Lotus Eater, as noted on the label he placed on the back of the completed work. Lotus Eater was a reference to Lotus Eaters of Greek mythology. The portrait depicts Thomas nude from the waist up, covering her left breast with her left hand while holding a rose with her right above her upraised face. The painting remained in his personal collection until his death in 1982 and was sold by his estate to a private collector in 1986. Vargas called Olive one of the most beautiful brunettes that Ziegfeld ever glorified. In July of 1916, she signed with the International Film Company. She made her on-screen debut in episode 10 of Beatrice Fairfax, a film serial. In 1917, she made her full-length feature film debut in A Girl Like That for Paramount Pictures. That same year, she signed with Triangle Pictures. Shortly after, news broke of her engagement to actor Jack Pickford, whom she had married a year prior. Thomas and Pickford, who was the younger brother of Mary Pickford, kept the marriage secret because Thomas did not want people to think her success in film was due to her association with the Pickfords. Her first film for Triangle, Madcap Madge, was released in June 1917. Her popularity at Triangle grew with performances in Indiscreet Corinne, 1917, and Limousine Life, 1918. In 1919, she portrayed a French girl who poses as a boy in, I guess, Toton, the Apache. Thomas later said that she felt her work in Toton was the first real thing I've ever done. She made her final film for Triangle, The Follies Girl, that same year. After leaving Triangle, Thomas signed with Myron Zelnick's, Zelnick's Picture Company in December of 1918 for a salary of $2,500 a week. She hoped for more serious roles, believing that with her husband signed to the same company, she would have more influence. Her first film for Selnick, Upstairs and Down, proved successful and established her image as a baby vamp. She followed with roles in Lover's Prisoner and Out Yonder, which both were released in 1919. In, 1920- in 1920s, The Flapper, she played a teenage schoolgirl who, who yearns for excitement beyond her small Florida town. Just wait a few years. Florida man's coming. Just, just wait it out. Thomas was the first actress to portray a lead character who was a flapper, and the film was the first of its kind to portray the flapper lifestyle. Frances Marion, who wrote this scenario, was responsible for bringing the term into the, the American vernacular. The Flapper proved to be popular and became one of Thomas's most successful films. On October 4, 1920, her final film, Everybody's Sweetheart, was released. Now, her first marriage was to Bernard Krug Thomas, a man she met at the age of 15 while living in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. They married on April 1, 1911, and lived with his parents in McKees Rocks for the six months of their marriage, or the first six months, then moved into their own apartment. Thomas worked as a clerk at the Pressed Steel Car Company, where Olive took care of the home. In 1913, the couple separated and she moved to New York City to pursue a career as a model. She was granted a divorce on September 25, 1915, 
on the grounds of desertion and cruelty. In 31, Bernard Krug Thomas gave an interview to the Pittsburgh Press detailing his marriage to Olive, implying that a cause of the demise of their marriage was her ambition, a desire to obtain a life of luxury and improve her station. Yeah, why not? You had a hot wife. She was painted and put on magazine covers. Yeah. I'd been right there behind her going, you go, baby, you go. Let them paint your tatas on a magazine cover. In, not, in late 1916, she met actor Jack Pickford, brother of one of the most successful silent stars, Mary Pickford, at a beach cafe at the Santa Monica Pier, where Hollywood dreams have happened. Oh, Santa Monica. <laughs> you would have seen it. She's giving me like this starry-eyed smile. I love Santa Monica. <laughs> First, I did get on the pier of the last trip, but James did, so. Oh, Santa Monica. We're a young girl waiting tables one day could become a starlet the next. Yeah. Way back, not anymore, though. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Both Thomas and Pickford were known for their partying. Oh, oh, great, these two. Screenwriter Frances Marion remarked, I have seen her often at the Pickford home, where she was engaged to Mary's brother, Jack. Two innocent-looking children, they were the gayest, wildest brats who ever stirred the stardust on Broadway. Both were talented they were much more interested in playing the roulette of life than in concentrating on their careers. It sounds like the old, uh, you know, live fast, die young, and leave a pretty corpse, you know? They eloped, Thomas eloped with Pickford on October 25th, 1916 in Joyce. I wonder if the place is still standing. Where it was, too. Right, where in Jersey. Yeah. None of their family was present with actor Thomas Megan as their only witness. Well, would you want their families involved in a, in a wedding like this if you're eloping? Hell no. If I ever elope, I'm not inviting anybody but me and the bride. And a six pack. For her, I don't drink. I'll, I'll have a bottle of rum. Oh, wait. I did see the other day in the store, I did see uh, a small half a case, I want to say, of already mixed Jack Daniels and Coke. So there you go. <laughs> so she can have her beer. I'm, I'm going to have my Jack and Coke. Although the couple never had their own children, in 1920, they adopted Thomas's six-year-old nephew, the son of one of her brothers, after his mother died. By most accounts, Thomas was a love of Pickford's life. However, the marriage was tumultuous and filled with highly charged conflict, followed by lavish making up through the exchange of expensive gifts. And that's how you do it, folks. You fight like cats, and then you buy gifts, and have the best makeup sex ever. You're thinking on that one. I, I can see that. You, the wheels are turning. 
you're for the gifts, not to make up sex. Okay. Uh, okay. Pickford's family did not always approve of Thomas, but most of the family did attend her funeral. In Mary Pickford's 1955 autobiography, Sunshine and Shadow, she wrote, I regret to say that none of of us approved of the marriage at that time. Mother, Charlotte Hennessy, thought Jack was too young, and Lottie and I felt that Olive, being in musical comedy, belonged to an alien world. Ollie had all the rich, eligible men of the social world at her feet. She had been deluged with proposals from her own world of the theater as well, which was not at all surprising. The beauty of Olive Thomas is legendary. The girl had the loveliest violet blue eyes I have ever seen. They were fringed with long, dark lashes that seemed darker because of the delicate, translucent pallor of her skin. I could understand why Florence Ziegfeld never forgave Jack for taking her away from the follies. She and Jack were madly in love with one another. I always thought of them as a couple of children playing together. For several years, Thomas and Pickford had intended to vacation together. Both were constantly traveling and had little time to spend together. With their marriage on the rocks, the couple decided to take a second honeymoon. In August 1920, the pair headed for Paris, hoping to combine a vacation with some film preparations. On the night of September 5th, 1920, they went out for a night of entertainment and partying at the famous bistros in the Montparnasse oh, I butchered that, quarter of Paris. Returning to their suite in the Hotel Ritz around 3 a.m., Peckford either fell asleep or was outside the bedroom. An intoxicated entire Thomas ingested a mercury bichloride solution, a topical medication that had been prescribed to Pickford to treat sores caused by his chronic syphilis, which seemed to be going around a lot back then. Well, if he didn't get it treated fast enough, he he would have been like Capone and gone crazy. (laughs) Or um, John wife. Right, but whenever I think of syphilis, it, I immediately think of Capone because that's what I think. Whatever, uh, you know, it's what he had uh, toward the final years of his life. Uh, he was having delusions because of the uh, the syph. <laughs> just like like what you're like the syph. It's like we're in some, you know, <laughs> gangster movie right now. I I don't know what they would have called it, but. You know, me and my friends have always called it the SIF. Yeah, so if I was. But now I'm like Helen List. So if the bullet had a goner, the syphilis probably would have. Oh, yeah. So, okay. While accounts vary, authorities speculated that Thomas thought the flask contained either drinking water or a sleeping tonic. The medication's label was in French, which may have added to her confusion. After drinking the liquid, she screamed, oh, my God, and Pickford had rushed to assist her. She was taken to the American hospital in the Paris suburb of newly sur where Pickford and his former brother-in-law, Owen Moore, remained at her side until she died five days later. While Thomas lay in the American hospital dying, the press began reporting on the various rumors that began to arise about the circumstances of the incident. Some papers reported that Thomas had attempted suicide after having a fight with Peckford over his alleged infidelities, while others said she attempted suicide after 
discovering Peckford had given her syphilis. There were, rumors, mm-hmm, there were rumors that Thomas was plagued by a drug addiction, that she and Peckford had been involved in champagne and cocaine orgies. That sounds that, fun. Mm-hmm. Or that Peckford tricked her into drinking poison in an attempt to murder her to collect her insurance money, which is why I'm never going to be covered by insurance. Owen Moore, who accompanied Peckford and Thomas in Paris, denied the rumors, saying that Thomas was not suicidal and that she and Pickford had not fought that evening. Jack Pickford also denied the rumors, stating Olive and I were the greatest pals on earth. Her death is a ghastly mistake. I I was just listening to Small Town Murder today and and uh life insurance came up in the in the show. Oh, I remembered what I wanted to tell you. Um, I was listening to an earlier, a uh, more recent one. I think it was like a couple weeks ago. It was a case in Delaware, and they talked about Wawa. Oh, cool. And, and um, actually, uh, James Petrigallo, one of the hosts, he said Wawa is the best place to go. Depends on what for. Actually, their paninis are pretty good. Right. They were talking about where paninis. else it where else at three in the morning can you go get a sandwich made and watch a fight happen? Nowhere. Um, Waffle House. I stand corrected. <laughs> Waffle House, you will watch a woman smack a chair out of midair. Uh-huh. So, yeah. That's a skill. Mm-hmm. A lot of DV in her past. Yeah, oh, yeah. On September 13th, 1920, Pickford gave his account of the night to the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. We arrived back at the Ritz Hotel at about 3 o'clock in the morning. I had already booked airplane seats for London. We were going Sunday morning. Both of us were tired out. We both had been drinking a little. I.e. a lot. It's Paris. We were sloshed. And this is also... Well, no, Paris... Europe wasn't bound by uh, prohibition like we were. I insisted that we had better not pack then, but rather get up early before our trip and do it then. I went to bed immediately. She fussed around and wrote a note to her mother. She was in the bathroom. Who writes a note in the bathroom? Unless you're Ralphie decoding the uh, Ovaltine commercial. Yeah, so maybe she was just decoding. <laughs> She's in there with the secret decoder ring. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm going to turn it to a B12 and uh, be sure to... What the heck? Suddenly, she shrieked, My God! I jumped out of bed, rushed toward her, and caught her in my arms. Oh, how romantic, man. She cried to me to find out what was in that bottle. I picked it up and read, Poison. It was a toilet solution and the label was in French. I realized what she had done and sent for the doctor. Meanwhile, I forced her to drink water in order to make her vomit. She screamed, Oh my God, I'm poisoned. I forced the whites of eggs down her throat, hoping to offset the poison. The doctor arrived, the doctor came. He pumped her stomach three times while I held olive. Nine o'clock in the morning, I got her to the New Ely Hospital where Dr. Choate. Choate. Choate? Yeah, Choate. Okay. Dr. Choate and Wharton took took charge of her. 
They told me she had swallowed bichloride of mercury in an alcoholic solution, which is 10 times worse than tablets. She didn't want to die. She took the poison by mistake. We both loved each other since the day we were married. The fact that we were separated months at a time made no difference in our affection for each other. She was even conscious enough the day before she died to ask the nurse to come to America with her until she had fully recovered, having no thought she would die. She kept continually calling for me. Jack! Jack! I was beside her day and night until her death. The, the physicians held out hope for her until the last moment, until they found her kidneys paralyzed. Then they lost hope. But the doctors told me she had fought harder than any patient they ever had. She held on to her life as only one case in 50. She seemed stronger the last two days. She was conscious. She said she would get better and go home to her mother. It's all a mistake, darling Jack, she said. But I knew she was dying. <laughs> he was kept alive only by hypodermic injections during the last 12 hours. I was the last one she recognized. I watched her eyes glaze and realized she was dying. I asked her how she was feeling and she answered, Pretty weak, but I'll be all right in a little while. Don't worry, darling. Those were her last words. I held her in my arms and she died an hour later. Owen Moore was at her bedside. All stories and rumors of wild parties and cocaine and domestic fights since we left New York are untrue. And now accepting Bess Oscar. Hey, wish. Hey, hey. I'm not saying for me, he, you know, that was a good mo that was a monologue he could have gave in a in a movie, you know? If only if only she had died when talkies were around. Oh yeah. After the autopsy, the police initiated an investigation or after her death, sorry. <laughs> the police initiated an investigation and an autopsy was performed. Her death was attributed to acute nephritis caused by mercury bichloride absorption. September 13th, 1920, her death was ruled accidental by the Paris physician who conducted her autopsy. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Jack Pickford brought Thomas's body back to the United States. Several accounts state that Pickford tried to commit suicide in Ralph, but was talked out of it. In her autobiography, Mary Pickford recalls her brother's disclosure that he had made such an attempt during the return trip. Jack crossed the ocean with Ollie's body. It wasn't until several years later that he confessed to his mother how one night during the voyage back, he put on his trousers and jacket over his pajamas, went up on deck and was climbing over the rail when something inside him said, you can't do this to your mother and sisters. It would be a cowardly act. You must live and face the future. On September 29th, 1920, an Episcopal funeral service for Thomas was held at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York City. According to the New York Times, police escorts were needed at the event, for the entire church was crowded with hundreds of fellow actors, other invited attendees, as well as a horde of curious onlookers. 
Several women are reported to have fainted during the ceremony, and several men had their hats crushed in the rush to view the casket. Thomas is interred in a crypt at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking when he was up on the deck getting ready to jump, is that an iceberg in the distance? Dear Lord, we cannot have that. Several years late, too late. Right. But that's inconvenient, that wouldn't it? <laughs> right. You know, hey. Don't have to do anything. You're first class. You're going to die anyway. So. Oh, hell no. Well, no, by this point, they had enough lifeboats to save everybody. And that's what I'm saying. If it had been several years earlier and right. it had, it had uh, actually, actually it would have, they were still doing women and children first. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He, you know, so he most likely would have knocked out an old woman, put on her clothes, jumped into a boat. Yeah. Oh wait, um, that's what that's what I would have done. Oh uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Quick shaves first, right? <laughs> no, I'm Eastern European, man. We're hairy. <laughs> I've seen old Greek women. They could put me to shame. <laughs> True. I'd have been up to. <laughs> you would have seen me like. Up on the grand staircase of the Titanic, doing a macho man, Randy Savage, atomic elbow drop from the top stairs, knocking out an old woman, putting her clothes on. I'm Eastern European. I need boot. Of course, I I don't know if I would have made it down to the cargo hold and got her body in time. Nah, she could be buried. You've been like, yeah, dead anyway, right? Right, right. You're dead, honey. Yeah. See ya. Hey, then you don't have to pay for a funeral. No, because she's burial, buried. Right? Yeah, she's already, yeah, so there we go. Burial at sea. Yep. Um, when I was looking this one up to do the show, this was like the first celebrity death that was like really majorly covered by the media. And, and being one yeah. of Zigfield's girls, of course she's going to get attention. Uh-huh. I, I heard about the Zigfield follies, man. I would have loved to have seen them. Hell, I would have loved to have been back here in Kankakee in the vaudeville days when all four Marx Brothers played town. That's been cool. Yeah, uh, they played here twice. Yeah. Well, the theater now is like a a dining hall that you can rent out for occasions. Uh, The Majestic used to be a uh, vaudeville theater back at the turn of the last century. And on... um, when they were renovating the place, they actually found the old handbills that uh, advertised that all four Marx Brothers were playing. That's cool. Yeah, they played on two sets. I would have loved to have seen it. I because I wonder if this was if, if at the time that they were doing that, uh, doing this, um, this run, if it was when Groucho had put on the uh, the grease paint for his mustache. Is like look up some pictures too, maybe. Right, and, and that's the thing is like before he put on the grease paint, he would actually apply a fake mustache. But one night he was in a hurry, so he just took some grease paint, dabbled it on his face, and it became the Groucho look. I'd have loved to see the Stooges with Ted Healy back in back in um, vaudeville. That's another story we should do for the Hollywood Babylon segment, Ted Healy's death. Uh, yeah. Well, well, there's there's controversy around it. And, oh, I know, because like, I read about it 
back when I was 10. Right. When it all started. You're right. But uh, no, this one, I, I was interested. I saw this in one of my books. So I looked it up and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting story. You know, I mean, granted, she died by accident. Mm-hmm. Which could happen, especially if, you know, you can't read French. Yeah. Uh, of course, the only French I learned as a kid was from Pepe Le Pew. So. Yeah, not exactly. No, but still. Well, I got rid of Pepe Le Pew now, too, right? Or they got rid of the other one. Yeah, I know. He, you know, I've read everything about him. Like, he thinks that she's a skunk. He's not trying to rape her. Yeah. Uh-huh. But um, no, it, it was a good story. I, I have another Hollywood one set up for next week. Ooh. Yeah, I was. I, I yeah, I will. But this weekend, uh, this past weekend, when I did this one, I was, I had the book and um, I was looking it up, and this name popped out. I'm like, I looked it up, and it's it's still an open. Inv- I mean, it's a an extremely cold case, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking like ice age cold case. I think I know what you're talking about. So, but but um, it it it's still an open investigation. Yeah, technically. <laughs> yeah, right. Technically, but it's in a cold yeah. case. But mm-hmm. we're gonna wrap this one up, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. We're trying to. Was I like I like working with Monica because we can branch out on different subjects, still relating to crime. But different subjects, yeah. and I actually can. I actually read the script too. So you're right. She's not sitting there. Yeah, okay. I do that too. But, you know, right. I, I do bring some a little something extra. Right. So um, I'm I'm still I I got to come up with a, a logo that's going to work for iTunes. That that's what's whole that's what's stopping our progress for iTunes right now is that is the logo. They wanted like three thousand pixels by three thousand pixels, so it's like pixel this. <laughs> I don't I, you know, one day when I was going through all these pictures creating a new one, I was like, I, I, I think I said that. <laughs> yeah. But um no, it it we're we're close to getting there. Just bear with us, folks. But you know where to find us. All the usuals, Castbox, Podbean, Spotify. I'm I'm thinking about maybe going maybe jumping on Anchor too, just to have another outlet. Thinking. Don't even know yet. But head over to Facebook. Take a look at the page. Monica puts up some interesting stuff when she comes across it. I do too. Oh, I, I just saw something this week that that caught my attention. Um, I, I want to talk about it more when we get to when we do Scientology because trust me, that's a cult, folks. But uh, David Miscavige's wife was just seen in public. Ooh. Well, right. She she she's been disappeared for she had disappeared years ago. No one knew where she was, but she was sighted at a like a Hollywood coffee house. Oh, 
knows? I'm thinking it's a Bigfoot sighting, but you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Size. I just seen. Um, I just seen a uh, a report that he was. Um, he's up on um, human trafficking charges. Which wouldn't which one surprise me. Yeah. All right. Until next time, folks. This is Killer Cults Nutjobs. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica.